for the next 12 weeks, Lord willing, we are going to study our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I could not be more excited. I say that in all sincerity. The more I research this book and, and study and discuss it with others, the more I genuinely get pulled into this text. The context of the city of Corinth and the church there is so much like our culture and our churches today. And the more I see that, the more relevant this letter becomes to me and to my family and to how I view my marriage and to our church. The more I see how desperately we need the truths in this letter and the more I see how beneficial they are to life. So most importantly, how honoring they are to the Lord himself. So I mentioned context just a moment ago. I think I've done more study on the historical background of this book than I ever have for any biblical book I've studied or a book that I've preached from. And I am more convinced than ever that we cannot really appreciate and really understand and relate to these 16 chapters unless we go back in time and sink our teeth into some historical context. So, to kickstart our study today, let me share some facts with you about the letter, the city, the church, and the, issue, the games and the issues that were specifically addressed in this letter. We're going to get an overview of the book today. Next week, we will dive into our verse-by-verse -verse study. But today, we're going to lay some historical foundation. So before I do that, though, let me ask, just out of curiosity, how many of you have done an in-depth study in the book of 1 Corinthians? To raise your hands, boy, probably a good 15 or 20 of you, that's, that's wonderful. If you'd like to take the time, I'd be interested to know how this book most impacted you. Regardless of how long ago it was, I'd, would you send me an email or catch me after a service or whatever? I'd love to hear your stories. Perhaps you'll even share some insights or, or facts that will inspire me in my own preaching of the book. Perhaps you'll share points of information that I wouldn't have come across. So whatever the case, I would love to hear from you. So for today, though, let's start with some background on the letter. If you're a note taker, then I encourage you to start jotting down these facts to help engage your mind. As most of you know, this book is one of the Pauline epistles. It means it's one of the letters written by Paul, and all of his letters were written either directly to churches or to individuals. And this letter to the Corinthian church was likely written around 55 A.D. Keep a few of these numbers in mind. This was definitely during his third missionary journey. So Paul has already been around the block in a sense. And his own understanding, his own burden for believers is continuing to develop and to deepen. Yes, this book was written to the Corinthian church, which was indeed in many ways a young and an immature church. But do not be fooled. This book is very deep. So in chapter 5, Paul indicates that he had already written to the Corinthian church at least once prior. And he was addressing the issue of immorality in the church. Now, no one has ever found that letter, so it has come to be known as the Lost Epistle. Perhaps it will show up someday. We also learn in chapter 16 that Paul was writing from the city of Ephesus. You can see on the map here, Ephesus was about 250 miles east of Corinth across the water. 
If you go around by land, it's about 900 miles, which is how Paul did travel to Corinth. So Ephesus was where Paul would end up staying for a total of three years. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, he gives two reasons in particular why he would stay there for such a lengthy time. One was, quote, a wide door for effective service, unquote. Meaning God was doing incredible things in Ephesus. And the other reason for his long stay was many adversaries. The spiritual battle was raging in Ephesus, and Paul sensed that he really needed to stick it out, again, for a total of three years in Ephesus. That's a long stop in the middle of a missionary journey. However, in Ephesus, Paul already anticipated going to Corinth and spending time with the church there, perhaps to spend the upcoming winter, he says. He longed to spend some significant time with the Corinthian believers rather than just pass through their city. Matter of fact, Corinth was his furthest destination point in his third journey. So this shows how much he valued the believers there. Now, why were they so important to him? As I'm sure a number of you know, Paul founded this church in his second missionary journey just three or four years prior. And again, he's writing them now from Ephesus during his third journey. So why is he writing to them when he plans to see them so soon? This is important to know. Paul had received word in Ephesus that the Corinthian church was going through some major doctrinal disagreements and some major sin issues. And I'll mention some of those in a minute. But apparently, these problems and these misunderstandings were significant enough that it warranted Paul writing them in advance of his coming to them. That says a lot because, as you know, Paul doesn't just type out an email and hit the send button. He just doesn't throw a stamp on a letter. This was somebody had to carry this letter 900 miles to them. All of this sending of a letter in advance implied tremendous importance. And Paul wrote out of urgency. And as we're going to see as we study through this book, this is in 21st century terms, kind of like a teenager getting a text from their dad. I'm going to be home soon, and we're going to talk. This was not good. So let's look at the city of Corinth for just a minute. Let's go back 200 years, 200 years before Paul wrote this letter. Corinth was a magnificent city, and it was attacked and it was ruined by the Romans in 146 B.C., so about 150 years before Christ. It was then reestablished in 44 B.C. as a Roman colony. So the whole city sat on a high plateau at the base of a mountain, as you can see in the picture here, at the base of the Acrocorinth, which was nearly 2,000 feet tall. An unusual Acrocorinth uh, uh, mountain, it had a spring that went most of the way up it. So it had water, which made it an incredible location for defense, etc. You can see in the picture here, doesn't that acro, the Acrocorinth there remind you of Mount Sai over on the other side of the Puget Sound? Both the plateau that the city sat on and the mountain behind it made for an excellent defense should the city be attacked. Unless, of course, it was the Romans attacking. So you can see on this map that Corinth, which is circled in yellow there, 
sits on the northern central side of the Mediterranean Sea. If we follow the, arrow, the red arrows from left to right, we have Rome in the top left, Corinth, then Ephesus, and down in the bottom right corner is Jerusalem. And if we zoom in a little on Corinth, you can see that the city lies about 50 miles west of Athens in the Roman province of Achaia, which, it was, which included the whole Peloponnesian Peninsula. That's the entire southern portion of Greece you see separated there from the mainland above it. So if we zoom any further, even further, you can see that Corinth is sitting at the head of an isthmus, that narrow stretch of land that connects northern Greece to Achaia in southern Greece. So as far as trade and commerce goes, that land link was of incredible value. But that's only the small of it. Because in order for ships to travel east-west, they either had to take the 250-mile trip south around the peninsula, which was time-consuming, and it was extremely dangerous because of the high winds. Remember, it was not far from here that Paul was shipwrecked. So either ships had to go around or the ship's content could be unloaded and then transported on skids or on rollers across the four-mile isthmus, right where Corinth was positioned. Those contents would then be loaded onto another ship that was waiting on the other side to continue their journey. Or if, if the ships were small enough, they could even be transported across the isthmus. At other times, as the ships would, large ships would unload all their cargo, and then they would make the lighter journey around and pick up their cargo on the other side. Now, we don't realize how significant this is until we zoom out and see the location of that isthmus. Virtually anyone in the eastern Mediterranean, it's parts of Egypt, Palestine, Asia Minor, etc., that you can see circled in red there, anyone in the eastern Mediterranean who wanted to go to Rome or anywhere in the northwestern Mediterranean, particularly by ship, whether it be for commerce or personal travel or even religious pilgrimage, etc., everyone would most likely go through Corinth. And of course, the same is true for anyone in Italy or the northwestern Mediterranean who wanted to go east. No wonder this city was such a strategic economic point as well as a powerful military point. It was a gateway for these entire two regions, linking Rome with the western Mediterranean, or excuse me, the eastern Mediterranean. And as such, it became a religious and a cultural melting pot, not too different than Seattle. So the Greek, Roman, and Oriental religions in particular were in abundance and if you studied Corinth, you know all of the religions were welcome, quote-unquote, in the city. Idol worship was prevalent in numerous religious sites. There were many very large temples. We'll see some today and some on some other videos that I have. But this all had a massive impact on the local people and especially on the church, as we're going to see in this book. So because of the amount of traffic and tourism, Corinth was incredibly wealthy. This is what made it so magnificent. It was perhaps the wealthiest commerce city in all of Rome, in the entire Roman Empire. So and it was because of that tourism and traffic that it had its wealth. 
and it's what made it so significant before the Romans attacked it, as well as what made it so prominent again 100 years later when the Romans colonized it. So the population estimates for Corinth sit anywhere from 100,000 to 600,000 people. So let's look at the games for a second. Like Century Field and um, uh, Century Link Field and Safeco Field in Seattle, anywhere that you have masses of people and lots of money, there are going to be big time games. And there were two major games in this part of the Roman world. You know the first one, the Olympic Games, and the second was the Isthmian Games. Corinth was the regular host of the Isthmian Games, which happened every other year. You can imagine the attraction that that was for tourism and, for, and the boost it was to the economy. And consequently, this city became well-known not only for trade and commerce, particularly in regards to the brass that was made in Corinth, the Corinthian brass, which some, some say was even more valuable than gold because it had gold and silver mixed into it. But they were also well-known for their luxury and their entertainment and their sports and pleasure, not the least of which was sexual immorality. One of the most significant temples in Corinth was the temple for Aphrodite, the goddess of love. So what about the church? As I mentioned earlier, Paul founded the Corinthian church on his second missionary journey, and it predominantly consisted of Gentiles, being this far away from Jerusalem, mostly Gentiles, both Roman and, Roman and Greeks and foreigners, but there were some Jews as well. There was a mix of the rich and the poor, the lowly and the noble, just like in any large city. And all, although there, this was a small church, there's some rough estimates that, 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 that put the number at anywhere from 50, 60 people to maybe 150. Even though it was, it was a small church, it was still a big city church because it was surrounded by the politics, the pleasure, the wealth, the entertainment, etc. And one of the fiercest problems that this posed for the church was compromise. The worldly culture pervaded the church, as we're going to see throughout this book. So consequently, the Corinthian believers faced understandable issues. Every church is impacted by its culture, its local culture. If you're going to be a pastor and go start a church in another city, you have to understand the culture of that city, the culture of those people. If you're going to be a missionary, you have to understand the culture of the mission field. So in Corinth, the culture fostered a number of issues in the church. There was a class struggle in the church between the poor and the wealthy. This massive melting pot of religions caused confusion and false doctrine in the church. Believers were suing each other in the secular courts. They had to deal with eating food offered to idols. Because remember, this city was known for its inclusion of all religions. And some of the believers were abusing the Lord's Supper. There was misunderstanding regarding the use of spiritual gifts. Again, the church suffered from gross immorality, particularly incest in the church. They misunderstood the role of men and women in marriage and in the church. And as you can imagine, their concept of love was warped. 
Thus, Paul wrote the famous 1 Corinthians chapter 13. These are just a few of the issues and the topics that Paul had to address in this letter. And again, the more we dig into this, the more we're going to see how pervasive these issues are in the churches today. There is nothing new under the sun. And thankfully, the, the wisdom and the truth of 1 Corinthians offers us a wealth of application and blessing. Now, if you've ever studied this book in depth, then you are well aware of the fact that I have barely, barely scratched the surface of the historical background and the context for 1 Corinthians. Its political, geographical, cultural history is incredibly eye-opening, and it's absolutely fascinating. So that's why I sent an email to the whole church this past Wednesday titled, First Corinthian study, how you can prepare. And that info, just so you know, is also listed on the homepage of the community so that you can access it anytime. There are five suggestions that I sent out for how we can engage with this 12-week study. The first one was read the whole book. Read it in one sitting if you can. Just reading it is powerful and captivating. And secondly, of course, pray. Join me in praying that God would use this book to really impact what we believe and therefore the way we live. And third, I shared a link to a CG video of an artist's rendition of what Corinth may have looked like. Guys, let's pull that up and show a minute of that. All right, that's good, guys. The camera does go zoom down right into the city past a number of the statues and and uh, whatnot, so enjoy the rest of that later. But I also, number four, I also shared a link to a video of a 44-minute tour of the city of Corinth that was done by a church and their pastor in New York. Guys, let's, let's play a couple minutes of that one as well. This is Corinth. Behind me are two of the iconic images of this city, the Temple of Apollo, and then behind it, the mountain, the Acro-Corinth. Today, I wanna introduce you to this amazing city because in 2015, we're going to study this book together. The Bible is a 2,000-year-old book that is as contemporary as the evening news. But the best way to apply that 2,000-year-old book is to understand what really happened here. There are things Paul talks about that without understanding the history and geography of this city, we could easily miss. I spent many hours reading, doing research, and visiting this city so I could introduce it to you and you can see the importance of the city of Corinth the history and its archaeology. When you know that, you will come to know this book better. There's no other letter in the New Testament that is so much easier to understand once you've visited the city to which it was written than Corinth. I think you'll see that during our study. The letter of 1 Corinthians is the longest letter in the New Testament, and the more you can understand this city's history, archaeology, and geography, the more this letter will make sense to you. This is Corinth. Once you watch that video, you will feel like you have been to Corinth. And of course, I was going to ask our church board to send me and a video team to Corinth to do our own documentary, but somebody already done it, so why go? But the last thing I shared, number five, was a link to a professor lecturing on the history of Corinth 
politically, geographically, culturally, and it was fascinating. I encourage you to watch these videos. This, the lecture in particular um, was probably one of the finest examples I've ever seen of someone pointing out how much an understanding of historical context will influence your view of the scriptures. And he, he, was, he was only going after a couple verses in 1 Corinthians, uh, but he went into a full study of the context of the city just to explain the two verses. Absolutely fascinating. So again, I encourage you to watch these videos. They will pull your curiosity and your understanding deeper into our study. The things that they say about the games, about the archaeological finds, especially in recent years, the things they, about, they say about the temples are stunning. So granted, the, the, the third lecture video, the one I just mentioned, is a lecture from an Assembly of God university. And no, I'm not endorsing all of Pentecostal theology. But I will say that that doesn't mean we can't learn a thing or two from our brothers and sisters on the other side of the denominational aisle. So I think that you will really enjoy these videos. And by the way, as Graham mentioned, if you didn't receive that email last Wednesday, just join the community, and um, that will put you on the church's email list. Okay, well, I trust that these resources will inspire you as much as they have me as we dive into this amazing letter to the church of Corinth. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to see that Paul touches on at least four major topics in the first four chapters. There are a number of topics. I'm going to highlight just four of them for now. The first is the divisions that occur in the church, the factions, the cliques that form based on wrong religious identities. And Paul's going to remind us that our boast should be in God alone. Another topic is a clever man versus a wise God. That is going to challenge our thinking. And third is the subtle but dangerous impact of jealousy and strife in the church. We just studied this in James a few months back. Paul comes at it from another angle. We're going to see the subtle, but uh, excuse me, uh, the last thing is the overcoming power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Therein lies the hope in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now the challenge with these topics is that Paul weaves these key points all together throughout the first four chapters. So even though in the first chapter he does address the topic of division in the church, based on wrong identities. He then refers heavily back to them and sheds more light on them throughout the next three chapters. It's like we can't study chapter one apart from two, three, and four. And when you get to chapter four, you can't study it apart from the prior three. You get the idea. So seeing that to be such a strong case in these first four chapters, I'd like to read them all this morning. My sense anyway, is that we don't read scriptures together in large portions often enough. Think back to the nation of Israel. There were times throughout the year where the nation gathered together, all those who could hear with understanding, and they read for a quarter of the day and another quarter of the day. And we often see that this resulted in tremendous spiritual awakening. Almost always, if not always, it was followed by a powerful movement of God. 
So this morning, I'd like us to read these first four chapters. We have 12 weeks to get through 16 chapters, but I want to devote some of this precious time to the reading. If I had to choose between my preaching and the reading of the text, we'd choose the text, the pure Word of God. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one under the seats nearby. And uh, I'll also have the text on screen. But as we read this, this together, keep an eye out for the main topics that I just mentioned and see if you identify other main topics. There are more. Jot down questions that you have. Make observations as you go. Start wrapping your mind around this letter to the Corinthian church and see if you don't agree with me and my sense that this study is going to be incredibly eye-opening and life-guiding for us as Christians. So let's pray before we read. Heavenly Father, our hearts and our minds are excited as we think about diving into a fresh portion of Scripture, knowing that, as was said, it is just as contemporary as the evening news, only better. These are the truths of God given to man that we might live this life well to the glory of God. Lord, we admit, we humble ourselves at the beginning of this study afresh, Lord, we admit and acknowledge that we are sinners in need of the sanctifying truths of the Word of God. We are the ones who are in need of the Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes and to speak truth into our hearts. We are the ones who need your grace to honor the Word. We thank you, Lord, that your grace will be sufficient we claim that promise, and it's why we're so excited to dive into this study today. Do a good work in our hearts and lift yourself up. Help us to walk away from this place, worshiping you more because we have read these chapters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning in chapter 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of, a, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak with wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not, have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Chapter 4. Let a man regard us in this manner, 
as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, or excuse me, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dreg of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? May God engage our minds and hearts afresh with the truths that we just read. Next week, we'll begin our verse study in chapter 1 with a focus on division versus unity in the church. Again, watch the videos I mentioned if you're able. Read the book for yourself. Pray and come expecting God to change your life and mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our finite minds 
can hardly even begin to fathom the depth of eternal and divine truth that we were just so privileged to hear. As we go through this week, Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Help us to love your law, as the psalmist said. Lord, create in us a desire to know and to be more like Christ so that we may reflect you well in this brief life you've given us. How we thank you that you have given us the words of eternal life. It's because you are the one true God. It is because you are truth. It is because you are love and peace and righteousness and justice that we worship you. Oh Lord, take our small, small faith and increase it if you would. We love you. We thank you for the body of Christ. How we look forward to seeing what you will do in our hearts to purge us more and more of the things that unnecessarily divide us. How we look forward to seeing you give us more and more the mind of Christ. Bless us as we love one another, as we love you, and as we take your love to this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.